Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You are listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am, and I'm James Whitmore. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land this show is being broadcast from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to Elders past and present. In today's show, the latest efforts to stop environmental destruction in two parts of Australia's marine environment, a huge gas development off the coast of Western Australia, and a major property development in Moreton Bay that risks vital habitat for critically endangered shorebirds. But first, here's an announcement. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, Retracing Melbourne's Queer Footprint. Queerways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queerways, a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Over early November, world leaders, organisations and businesses have gathered in Egypt for the 27th Congress of Parties, or COP, on international climate negotiations. With scientists warning that the goals of the Paris Agreement to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius are becoming almost impossible to meet, some of the main items on the agenda have been how to assist less wealthy countries reduce emissions and how to compensate them for damage caused by climate change. Australia, since electing the current Labor government, has a new deeper emissions target and is working to strengthen policies to reduce emissions. But meanwhile, up on the northwest coast of Western Australia, an enormous fossil fuel project is underway. That's the Scarborough Gas Project, proposed by fossil fuel company Woodside. It's so big that if all the gas was burned, researchers estimate that it would produce 1.4 billion tonnes of greenhouse gases. That's three times Australia's annual emissions. Several conservation groups are challenging the project in court, and the latest is the Australian Conservation Foundation. To find out more about the campaign to stop the Scarborough Gas Project, I spoke to Rebecca Markey-Towler from the University of Melbourne. Hi, Rebecca. So the Scarborough Project off the northwest coast of Western Australia, it's an enormous project. But how does it compare to other fossil fossil fuel projects that have been proposed over the past 10 years or so, for instance, the Carmichael Mine, Adani's Carmichael Mine in Queensland? Yeah, look, a really good question. Thanks, James. Um, I think 
the, the, the distinction here is the Adani Carmichael project and a lot of projects previously in Australia have been coal projects um, and the Scarborough gas project is in its name it's a gas project so gas is really touted by a lot of a lot of fossil fuel companies um, to be a sort of transition transition fossil fuel because it's um, said to be cleaner quote unquote than coal. Um, so in terms of how the project actually compares to fossil fuel projects throughout history, look, there's been research that's come out from a number of organisations, the Conservation Council of Western Australia and the Australia Institute, suggests that the pollution from the Scarborough project is going to add an extra 1.69 billion tonnes of carbon to that. Um, Climate Analytics, another NGO, has suggested it's around 1.4 billion tonnes. Um, look, the critical um, to compare exactly the size of the project to what's gone in the past. Critical point really is, is it's not so much the exact amount, but it's actually that cumulatively all of these projects add up to um, significant amounts of warming. So although it's important, um, so of course while it's important, you know, the amount that these projects are going to contribute, um, the fact that there are all these fossil fuel, fossil fuel projects, coal, gas, um, continuing, what they cumulatively add up to is increased global warming. Um, and the, the International Energy Association Agency has said that we can have no more um, oil, new oil and gas projects to keep global warming out to reach net zero emissions by 2050. So in terms then of what the Scarborough gas project means, um, for uh, and comparably by size, it's really significant that um, it is going to increase global warming. Uh, it will it will contribute to an increase in global uh, temperature rise, and we really can't afford that in the context of trying to keep warming to one point two one point five degrees Celsius. So one of the really interesting things about this particular project is that there have already been a number of legal challenges to the project, and some of them have already made their way through the courts. Can you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, so those previous challenges, there's actually been a re- uh, quite a few challenges against the Scarborough Gas Project. And um, that's a really critical strategy of climate litigants around the world. So Australia, uh, your listeners may, may or may not know, Australia is really a hotbed of climate change litigation. We're actually the jurisdiction with the second highest number of cases worldwide after the United States. So we have a really long tradition of um, wonderful lawyers and, and litigants who are bringing these cases to the courts to really try and um, really try and, uh, to transition to a net zero future. And so for projects like the Scarborough, Scarborough Gas Project, one of the strategies that they use is they have a number of different, they use a number of different legal strategies and legal avenues to try and um, try and prevent the projects from going ahead. So what we see is these other regulatory challenges have actually been based on very different legal avenues. They've been brought under Western Australian laws. They've been challenging the decisions of the ministers over there. They've been targeted different parts of the project. So at the train lines, at the pipeline. Um, so these previous challenges, whilst not they haven't been successful, um, and there's not, I think there's one or two that are still in train as well as this this um, the, the challenge that we're going to talk about with the um, the offshore offshore component of the project. Um, really, the whole the whole aim of these challenges is to try and slow the process down to actually make sure that um, the environmental we're, we're trying to target it from a number of different ang- angles 
to slow it down and that hopefully to prevent people going ahead. So whilst these previous challenges haven't necessarily always been successful and they've brought on, been brought under different legal avenues, um, it's all part of this strategy to try and stop the project from going ahead. It's really interesting because sometimes people see these sorts of challenges and characterise them um, quite emotively uh, using the term lawfare. Is this a legitimate way to use the law? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's a good question because that often does come up, um, come up in um, people who are saying, oh, climate litigation isn't a valid tool to try and... Um, uh, yeah, it's lawfare. It's not actually, uh, it's counterintuitive and it's not appropriate. I think if we think about what are we actually trying to achieve at the end of the day, the goal of the Paris Agreement is to keep global warming to below 2 degrees Celsius, pursuing efforts to keep it to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So I think in that context, it's not lawfare. It's these really concerned citizens who realise that climate change is real and it's not something that's happening in the future. It's happening right now and it's happening on our doorsteps and it's a real justice issue as well. A lot of these people who are bringing cases are people from vulnerable groups. So we had the Sharma case um, in Australia quite recently where there were eight children who really have contributed nothing to global warming and yet they're the ones who are going to live with the future uh, in, a, in a future warmed world. And they're the ones who are, this, there's this real intergenerational and intragenerational inequity that's caused by climate change. So I think climate litigation isn't lawfare in that context. It's really these people who are trying to seek justice in, in every way that they can um, and trying to secure that safe climate future, which is really what we're trying to achieve at the end of the day. And the courts are a really critical part of that solution. Mm. All right, can you talk a bit about the case that's currently moving through the courts brought on by the Australian Conservation Foundation? Yeah, sure. So it's a great, it's a really interesting case. Um, so the current challenge, um, it, they're arguing that um, the Scarborough Gas Project, which is off the coast of Western Australia, um, which is obviously of interest to your listeners being oceans and coastal program, um, they're arguing that this project ought to be assessed under the Australia's um, Environmental Protection and Conservation Act. And that's a federal piece of legislation that really is a big piece of environmental uh, protection legislation in Australia. Um, and they and the litigants in this case are arguing that this project, the Scarborough Gas Project, ought to be assessed under our environmental um, environmental laws. At the moment, the project actually hasn't been um, assessed under the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, so the short to the EPBC Act. So at the moment, it hasn't been under, assessed under that. And that's because of a provision that says that um, Projects like these, these offshore gas projects, actually get assessed under a more streamlined process, and that's organised by the um, the not not NOPSEMA, um, and they're responsible for projects like the offshore uh, like the offshore gas project. Um, but what the litigants in this case are actually saying is that no, it shouldn't have been able to go through that streamlined process. It actually has to be assessed under the EPBC Act, and that's because it the project will likely have a significant impact on the World Heritage Site, which is the Great Barrier Reef. And so what they're arguing is that if this project is likely to have a significant impact on the Great Barrier Reef. And that's because all the gas, like we talked about earlier, this project is actually going to be hugely polluting. It's going to increase um, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which will increase global warming. 
So what they're arguing is that because of the increase in global warming that will come as a result of the Scarborough Gas Project, that's going to increase global temperatures, it's going to contribute to ocean acidification, and that will lead to coral bleaching events. And because of this unacceptable impact and likely significant impact on the Great Barrier Reef, this project actually can't be assessed under the streamlined process, it should actually be assessed under the EPBC Act. And so that's what they're trying to argue. They're trying to argue, no, you can't continue to have these regulatory, um, you can't continue to go ahead with this project, it hasn't been finalised yet, you can't continue to go ahead with it until you actually have it assessed under Australia's EPBC Act. It's going to be really interesting to watch this play out because it's such a, uh, a an argument that really hinges on the getting to the science of it and all that sort of stuff. I want to know, let's say any of these cases are successful and there have been a couple of successful cases, what would that mean for other fossil fuel projects or what's the hope that it would mean for other fossil fuel projects? Yeah. Look, it's a, it's a, that's a great question and it's really topical at the moment um, because, as I said, Australia's really hotbed of climate litigation. Um, so there are actually a number of challenges um, challenges around to various fossil fuel projects around Australia. One piece of, one piece of litigation I'll mention in particular is it's called the Living Wonders Legal Intervention. And basically what... The lawyers in that case have argued is that the federal environment minister should reconsider 18 fossil fuel projects around Australia for their climate change impacts. And when this legal intervention was filed, um, that was under the previous government, we've now had a change in government and we've now seen that the federal environment minister, Tanya Plebisek, has agreed with these litigants and said, oh, maybe we should open these projects up for public consultation to hear people's views on whether or not they should go ahead due to their potential impacts on climate change. So going back to your question in terms of well, what does this mean for all these other fossil fuel projects that are ongoing, I think that it's just these sorts of cases like the Living Wonders Intervention, like the Scarborough Gas Project, they're really pointing towards this overall trend which says we're actually getting off fossil fuels and quickly. And what that should be signalling to fossil fuel companies to investors, um, to people around the world, to governments, it should really be a wake-up call that fossil fuels uh, are no longer good business, um, if they ever were good business in the first place, and we're moving towards this more just and environmentally sustainable future. And that's what really gives me hope when I see this little litigation. We're moving towards a future, hopefully, which is going to be safe for us and for our future generations. That was Rebecca Markey Taylor from the University of Melbourne. After the break, the latest on the campaign to protect Toonda Harbour in Queensland. But first, here's King Stingray with Sweet Arnhem Land. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio.
Hey, this is Jane from The Herb. Please support community radio and your local music scene. We can't hear you. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Toonda Harbour in Moreton Bay is a really special place. So special that its wetlands, which are vital feeding grounds for critically endangered shorebirds, are recognised internationally. But those wetlands are threatened by a plan by the Walker Corporation to build 3,600 residential dwellings and a marina for 200 berths. BirdLife Australia is one of the conservation groups challenging the development. To get the latest, I spoke to campaigner Andrew Hunter, who was up at Toonda Harbour when I spoke with him. He also just got some very exciting bird news. Hi, Andrew. Um, so this campaign's been going on a while. Can you remind us why Toonda Harbour is so important? Yeah, yeah, great leading question, James. So, so Toonda Harbour is a site within a network of sites in Morton Bay, just outside of Brisbane. Uh, so Morton Bay is internationally recognized uh, for its importance to the environment, specific, specifically for migratory shorebirds. Um, so it's internationally recognized as a key biodiversity area, uh, an East Asian Australasian flyway uh, network site, which is um, a, a migratory pathway that these birds follow from uh, Asia down to Australia and New Zealand. Uh, but most importantly, it's considered a Ramsar wetland of international significance. So. Um, Ramsar wetlands are uh, some of the most important wetlands in the world. Um, countries like Australia signed up to a treaty called the Ramsar Convention. Uh, it's one of the oldest and um, uh, most important conservation treaties. And countries like Australia sign up and say they will protect the most important wetlands within their boundaries. And Morton Bay is one of those Ramsar sites. So you're actually uh, hearing a bit of wind in the background, which is because you're actually up at the site of Morton Bay right now. And um, I understand you've um, had some very exciting news this afternoon. Can you tell us a bit yeah, about that? Yeah, yeah, great. So I, I was hoping to do this interview from my hotel room because I'm usually based in Melbourne. Uh, but I flew up to, to Brisbane to hold some workshops locally at Cleveland where Toonda Harbour is being proposed. And uh, a local volunteer said, hurry down to the, um, the foreshore. There's, uh, you know, a large flock of eastern curlew, which are critically endangered and, and one of the key species that BirdLife is really concerned about um, that will be impacted by the Tunda Harbor project. And I get down here and there's over 150, maybe 160 individual eastern curlew. Again, these are critically endangered birds. So seeing a, a flock of that size is really powerful and it exceeds the max count that the Walker Group um, consultants have said in their draft environmental impact statement that have been found here. So they said the max count was 45 and we've counted 150, 160 today. So three times what they're saying in their draft environmental impact statement. So can you just set the scene for us? So these birds, have they just arrived in Australia from from the Northern Hemisphere? Is yeah, so what they're yeah, doing they, they generally um, start to arrive back to Australia around September, uh, October. Um, so they breed up in the Northern Hemisphere in uh, Siberia and Northern China. Um, and then they make epic migrations, 10,000 kilometers nonstop. So these birds, they, they don't, uh, I mean, sometimes they do stop in like the LSE to fuel up. Um, but when they actually fly, they, they flap their wings continuously. If they land in the water, they can't swim. Uh, they don't, they're not waterproof. So unfortunately they would die if they fell into the water. Um, so sometimes these birds fly, you know, 10,000 kilometers nonstop from their breeding grounds down to, to Australia. Um, it's really one of the most amazing feats in nature. Um, they, 
They uh, put on lots of weight before they make these uh, migrations, so they have the fuel to, to come down here. They shrink some of their internal organs so they can reduce their weight. Um, they're really just the marathon sprinters. Uh, not marathon sprinters, but the marathon runners in the natural world. So let's talk about this development. And there's a lot of, you know, legal and bureaucratic stuff that goes on around yeah. this. And the crux now is an environmental impact statement that the corporation has prepared around the development. Can you tell us what an environmental impact statement yeah, is? Yeah, so this is a report compiled by proponents. So the proponent in this case is Walker Corporation, one of the largest and wealthiest um, private developers in Australia. Um, so basically what they do is, is they go through a federal assessment process. Um, and in the first instance, they, they make a referral to the federal government um, saying, this is what we want to do. Um, do you approve it or do you reject it? And um, do you, can it go to the next stage of assessment? We, knew, we know th through freedom of information um, laws that the uh, previous minister for the environment, Josh Frydenberg, ignored advice of his own department that um, advised that the Tunda Harbor proposal should have been rejected from the beginning. Uh, he ignored that and he progressed it to the next stage. And that's an assessment through an environmental impact statement. Uh, so this is a report of technical details, surveys, um, basically how the project will impact on the environment and how the proponent plans to uh, first avoid those impacts and then mitigate and offset those uh, impacts. So that was released on the 6th of December, uh, not the 6th of December, that was released on the 12th of October. And we have until the 6th of December to provide public comments to that. And that's that's where we are at today. So what do you see? So obviously there are some concerns around this environmental impact statement. What are some of the main ones that you're worried about? Yeah, one of the biggest things sticking out to, to BirdLife Australia, and again, we're, we're still reviewing this EIS. It's over 5,000 pages of, of documents, so it will take us some time to dig through it. But one of the um, most, I guess, um, egregious claims that, that the proponent is making is that this will not have impacts on shorebirds like the Eastern Curlew, like I was just talking about, because these birds have seen such massive declines in the last 30 years. For the Eastern Curlew, their populations have declined by 80% in the last 30 years, and that's led them to be declared critically endangered. And Walker Corporation's um, draft environmental impact statement is saying because of those declines, the rest of Morton Bay can take those displaced birds and they will be able to survive. And this is egregious for one, because it doesn't account for the birds' chances of recovery. Um, if these birds do recover, which we hope they will, and the federal government is um, investing lots of money in their recovery, Eastern Curlew were just listed as one of the 22 uh, priority species in the uh, federal um, threatened species action plan. Their, their, um, their claims here is, is really um, you know, based on the fact that these, these birds can't recover. If they can recover, then uh, the site at Tunda Harbor will become that much more important because the lack of feeding habitat um, already in Tunda Harbor, uh, not in Tunda Harbor, but Morton Bay due to similar developments, um, has pushed these birds into fewer and fewer places. It seems quite mad, as you've just mentioned, that um, it's a, not only are they listed as critically endangered, this is a Ramsar site, um, and there are priority species under the threatened species plan. Why isn't it just automatically, no, you can't develop a piece of land? Yeah, that's, that's, that, that's a great question. And it goes back to the, the status of Australia's weak environmental legislation, the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. 
that was reviewed independently in 2020, and the previous, um, the current government has committed to responding to that review and um, introducing legislation next year to uh, improve uh, the legislation. But as it currently stands, our national nature laws allow that um, that level of ministerial discretion that Minister Frydenberg made when he. Uh, moved this project to the next phase of assessment and ignored the advice of his own Department of Environment, who don't think that this stacks up from the beginning. So submissions are open till December 6. What happens after that? Yeah, so after that, um, the proponents will have to um, take in all of the comments that they've received. They'll have to respond to every single comment, and then they will compile a final environmental impact statement. And that will go to the Department uh, of the Environment and the Minister for the Environment for review and assessment. And as soon as that final environmental impact statement is in the hands of the Environment uh, Minister, there'll they'll be 40 days before a decision is made on whether to approve it, approve it with conditions, or reject the proposal. All right. And so you're calling for people to get involved in making submissions on this environmental impact statement. Can you tell us a bit about how they, how people can yeah, absolutely. So you don't, I guess, first and foremost, you don't have to be a scientist or an expert to engage in this process. This is a matter that has implications for everyone across Australia and, and indeed the world. Um, these are uh, matters of national environmental significance. These are critically endangered birds that everyone across Australia um, ha- should have a say in, in their future. Um, so that's everyone can can make a comment and we have just launched a new online toolkit that makes it really easy so we've got a form that you just need to fill out your details and we've got some suggested comments on impacts to the migratory shorebirds like the eastern curlew impacts on morton bay impacts on koalas and other marine life Um, so we've got a whole list of comments that you can kind of pick and choose which ones that you're um i guess um most concerned about uh, and just put in that you oppose this uh, completely inappropriate development proposal. And you can do that by going to act for birds, A-C-T-F-O-R-B-I-R-D-S.org and go to the Save Tunda Harbour page. That was Andrew Hunter from BirdLife Australia. And that's all we've got time for this week. To listen to this show again or any of our previous episodes, head to www.3cr.org.au forward slash radio blue. We'll be with you again next week. And in the meantime, stay well.